You're listening to Look at My Records. I'm your host, Tom Gallo, and this is episode 163. For this edition of the podcast, Deanna Delandro joins me as co-host for a chat with Brooklyn's Simon Spine. The band just released their colorful and vibrant new record, Charismatic Megafauna, on Northern Spy Records. The fiercely danceable album centers on themes of change and separation and can even be categorized as a breakup album as the lyrics dissect both personal and musical breakups for each of the members. During our interview, we chatted about how members Noah Prebish and Sabine Holler met while playing in the band Barry, the sonic evolution that the band underwent between their first record and Charismatic Megafauna, what it was like working with Andrew Van Wingarden of MGMT, how Charismatic Megafauna accidentally turned into a breakup record, and much more. Plus, the band picked some great records from my collection including a rare Bjork 12-inch single and the recently rediscovered gem Disco Jazz by Rupa. Plus, Sabine tells us all about what was going through her head when she attended the last ever Sonic Youth show in Brazil back in 2011. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look At My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website, where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. All right. Hey, we're here. We're feeling good. Here with Simon Spine. We've got Noah, Mike, Peter, Sabine, and of course, my awesome co host, Deanna Delandro. How's everybody doing? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to have you all here. Your new album charismatic megafauna it's out now on northern spy records congratulations on the release oh yeah tell me how's everything going with the band how has the weird circumstances of the last year been for simon spine it has been like a pretty intense year for me um i'm not an american citizen i'm like brazilian and german so the second that the pandemic started it was like completely unviable to live as an immigrant in america it just became an impossible thing to so around may i moved back to germany where i'm currently living I used to live before I moved to New York. I moved to New York in 2017, where I met Noah and everyone. But yeah, and I, think I haven't seen them since our last show, which was March 4th. <laughs> 
And it's pretty funny because it was like a week before the pandemic started. So I think we were the last show of many people. So I have like friends like writing me sometimes. You guys played in March. It was sick. And that was like the last show on planet. <laughs> no. Yeah, totally. That's so funny that you mentioned that because I was just writing about one of the last shows I saw and what I remembered about it as if it's so long ago. It is long ago. But when you're experiencing it, you didn't know when it was happening that this would be the last show. So you weren't really, I wasn't really like savoring it, but I was trying to hold on to whatever memory I had of it. What do you all remember about that last show? I, I remember that we almost pushed it back a week because we didn't think we were good enough at playing the songs. <laughs> boy, <laughs> if we had yeah. done, oh my God. It was our first show actually with this uh, current, like, uh, form so it was actually my first show with the band and last <laughs> <laughs> it won't be the last that's my prediction I sure hope here. not you guys funk it up Simon <laughs> Spine will be back someday soon did you play songs from this record or was it older material it was this record we played actually almost the whole record because i think uh, we planned on releasing the album before like the moment that we're releasing now because we thought it would be able to like tour yeah, in october yeah. you know <laughs> like but, so that's why like i think we actually pushed everything to february of 2021 because we we still would like to tour the album uh so yeah, yeah we definitely played like most of the shows in the record most of the songs in the record was that a tough decision for the band to decide to delay the release of the record for what it sounds like songs you had recorded mastered finished producing well over a year ago i think i think that most musicians at least in our sort of bracket will relate to the fact that by the time music comes out, it almost never feels the way it felt when you were writing it. Yeah. And there's this effect of like um, hearing a word over and over and over until it sort of, not exactly that it loses its meaning in this case, the meaning changes, but it becomes very different. And so I think, I think by the point that we were talking about pushing it back, we were all just kind of like, man, like, I don't know. We, we don't even remember what we wrote these songs about at this point. It's not that it's not that they don't ring true to us because they totally do. But, you know, we there's already, I think, by the time it goes through all of the mixing and the mastering and everything, there's already sort of a trippy disconnect from it. So it, it we, we were like, yeah, whatever, just do whatever. We don't we don't really care. <laughs> we, we just want to be able to do band stuff we wanted to you know tour and things yeah i was reading that you did a lot of band stuff with barry over the last few years touring doing a lot of things like that traveling the world was this like a really big adjustment for you all adjusting to this year and, and how challenging was it 
Well, when when Sab and I left Barry, we were both, I think, kind of burnt out from touring. Actually, I wasn't. My feeling when we left Barry was like, um, next time, if I'm ever going to tour this much, I'm going to really, I have to really, really want it. I have to really feel connected. And um, it's not that we didn't enjoy playing in Barry. It was like an amazing experience in so many ways. And and I did love those experiences touring, but but ultimately it was somebody else's music. And I felt like putting putting my life on hold in the way that touring does and putting myself through the like accelerated aging process that touring puts one through. It just had to be for the right reason. And so I, it, it would have since pandemic, it would have been kind of perfect timing because we had, we had about probably like a year of just full on no more touring, just thinking about Simon Spine, writing these new songs, getting rehearsing, like getting this new lineup Sab and I met playing in Barry, so again, Sab wasn't in the band before that, yeah. and this was us. In this, this whole process was a rebuilding time. Our drummer Nathaniel had left the country, or I'm sorry, not the country, the state. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are borders anyway? Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so yeah, there was this whole like there's this whole rebuilding process, and I think there was a ton of philosophical. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, rebuilding like what a what the band meant to us. Simon Spine existed long before yeah. in a different in a different lineup, and that experience playing somebody else's music was really really eye opening and and clarified a lot about how important band dynamics and emotions are and how those things can be better managed. And so when we came back, we were like set on longevity we were like okay we're gonna you know we're, we're gonna find all of these strategies for talking through all of our feelings we're making sure everybody always feels seen making sure that this can last and be as sustainable as it possibly can so i think we were about ready to tour we were i was feeling emotionally ready to tour again you know and then and then obviously things happened and um we had to reroute our expectations but i also think it's cool you guys still have uh what seems to be a strong relationship with barry like on your single milk what was it like making that together we were we were actually still in barry when we first started writing that song in fact barry was actually playing in simon spine for a little bit at that point this was before when we started that song sabine wasn't in the band yet and simon spine was slower because barry was taking up a lot of time and because michael and peter had solo projects happening and there was a lot of, we were taking our time with it, but we were slowly building up some of these new songs on the side. And then when we sort of accelerated, when we were like, okay, we're getting into Simon Spine mode, it's happening. Sabine's in the band, let's do this. Then we sort of dug out that demo from that time and it kind of felt like a cool snapshot. Yeah. I mean, Barry, Barry's off doing her own thing, you know, um, we're, we're all good. We all we figured we all figured out. We all agreed basically on what we wanted at the end, and that we we agreed that we wanted different things. So it wasn't contentious. It's interesting how I feel like some of the things you just mentioned about how this project Simon Spine is has definitely changed in the four years since you put out your first record, and. 
that is also overlapped with the experience of you playing in Barry and maybe kind of learning about what you wanted this project to sound like and the kind of music that you wanted to write with Simon Spine and create with Simon Spine. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing your perspective as far as the things that you think have changed and what you have learned in the four-year period since the first record that you released for this project. Because in listening to it, you could definitely hear the sonic differences, but I'm curious to hear what you think, uh, how the dynamics have changed and what you think has changed as far as what you're what you were looking to create uh, when you wrote these songs and recorded these songs. Well, I'll speak quickly on this and then pass it off to one of these guys. But I think that um, there were multiple things happening. We moved when we were writing the first album, we were, most of us were in college together, or at least in that lineup. We were living in upstate New York. We moved to the city and over that four year period between putting out that record and putting out this record, we were living in New York and we were getting involved in the, I don't know, the dance music community. And we were, we were soaking up that whole thing. And the result is just totally, totally different. When you're, when you're living in upstate New York, it's easier to, it's more affordable to have access to spaces and space has a sound And New York yeah. has, has a very different sound than upstate New York naturally, because literally the spaces are smaller. That stuff is really interesting to me in it. And the spaces that you're writing in being smaller and the sort of music that you're going out and hearing, it all permeates through each other. So so there is, on the one hand, there is this real push for, we became a lot more interested in, in music you could dance to. And then I think the experience with Barry for me was a big, I mean, Barry is like this pop genius. And so being, being around her and the writing and production process was revealing and a lot of, I think, I think a lot of that did sort of infect my, it, it changed my attitude towards aspects of pop music and it simultaneously had the effect of pushing me really far in the opposite direction. It was kind of like both, both happened at the same time. Yeah. I picked up on some of the, some of the tricks in a way that I think that the formatting of this album has uh, maybe more pop structure in a lot of ways and more hooks than our first album did. Um, and at the same time, the experience of playing in a pop band sort of reiterated that I really, really wanted to make like totally weird music. Yeah, I guess the first record, uh, we kind of spanned about like six genres and 10 songs. <laughs> um, and throughout, as, as Noah was saying, throughout the course of those years, we kind of found a sound we all agreed upon to really pursue for Paradigm Megafauna, which is, you know, somewhere in the middle of all of our different interests. We all listen to rather different music, and that's pretty apparent in the first album. And uh, we kind of buckled down on a sound for the second one, which there, which definitely did involve some musical influences from Sabina Noah's time in Barry. Um, I think also the first record's a good example of the, the first record's a good example of when um, people start a band. They kind of just are like, "Well, I have these songs. I have these songs," and like charismatic megafauna 
it's uh, a development because it was like the first thing we actually wrote from the beginning together. Like a lot of the first record stems from like when Noah and Peter were like 15 or 16 or 17, whereas now it's yeah. like we're all in our mid to late 20s and it's like we're like, we've just grown a lot together and played a bunch of shows together and been in a lot of goofy situations together. So it's like we've grown together musically, but also like just like we know. I think Simon, the, like the sound of what Simon's mind is, is just getting more and more to the core of like the four of us are as musicians together. Yeah, the collaborative process is more communal for every song when it used to be a bit more split up. Yeah. Most importantly, Sabine's in the band now. I mean, that had a massive, massive effect on the songwriting. That's, that's, that, that can't be expressed enough. Like, um, Sabine is, when we found, when we found Sabine, it was like, oh, you've been in this band forever. It was just like the, the missing piece, you know? So. So that that certainly had a huge impact, and also I will say Michael wrote a lot more on this on this album, which also had a big impact on the first album. Like most of the songs were Peter and I composing, with everyone playing and Michael mixing, but on this album everybody was writing. Everything. Is there anything for you, Sabine, where you entered the band and you were like, okay, this this is whack. I'm gonna make this cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I think I saw a show of you guys that one of your band members got, I think it was at Brooklyn Bazaar, and one of your band members uh, got so drunk that like he just fell on the audience. And it was, I don't know if it was like either drunk or just like hyper. Because <laughs> like it, it was like literally one week after I met you, so I don't really know. like. I just remember that, like, it was definitely a, a bit of a weird vibe. Uh, yeah, I actually love that moment. He put his foot on a monitor and it fell, so he fell off. The stage and then it was, it was, a, especially because it wasn't like a punk show, you know. Like people were just like chilling, <laughs> like all the audience, like people were vibing to it, but no one was just like, "Yeah, jump!" <laughs> but yeah. I remember, so yeah, that was the first show I saw. But you guys already sounded great, and I already, I, I already loved, loved how you guys sounded. So I was already a fan. You had mentioned that the way your songwriting process works now is that everyone has their hands on every song in some way. W what does that look like uh, for you as a band? It changes a lot. Um, Certainly, I mean, I, I can say without getting too much into it that we're writing songs for album three already, and that process right now is done remotely. So that's that's quite different. That's yeah. Often, um, Michael and Peter and I will will often kind of quarantine and then like get together somewhere and quarantine together and work on music and then send stuff back and forth to Sabine. But typically, how a lot of album two is written was um, we would. A lot of times, everybody would just come over to the apartment that I was living in at the time in Greenpoint, and we would just uh, come up with some. Sometimes one of us would have come up with a baseline or something, and we would just sort of like riff and like pass a microphone around. And often it was very communal like that. Sometimes it would start. There are a few songs that started basically as 
more or less fleshed out demos and then and then we're touched by you know by everyone but we have a strong i mean anybody that's in simon's spine is somebody that we really really believe in the taste of that person and, and their talent so nobody doesn't get to touch something if somebody if somebody has any strong feeling about a song it will always affect the song there are times where someone may not feel strongly about about aspects of the song in which case i think the difference is on this album we we learned if you don't feel strongly about a song that works just just let it you know let it happen which also which also resulted in maybe a more coherent album as compared to the first one but but yeah they everything was pretty much different we everything is by Simon's spine that's that's important for us that's like philosophically central to it is if you're in Simon's spine you're writing for Simon's spine that's really cool Noah and Sabine I know you both played together in Barry which is how you met uh, when did you both realize that you'd work well together in this project specifically? Like, when did you realize you're kind of operating maybe on the same wavelength and that this would work well? I think probably on tour and on rehearsals, we were already like, I don't know, sharing the same vibes. And I mean, we were good friends so we would get along. And I don't know, like Noah helped me produce like a solo track once and then that also, like, we would just jam sometimes, and I think, like, it really resonated with the music. So it just felt pretty natural, like, it would be a good collaboration. I think there there was, like, one moment I remember that we were in Barry and we were, we, we came up with this, like, intro to a song together that we were going to try to do live, and it was, and it was totally weird and totally cool, and Barry was like, guys, this is cool, but this is, like, so weird, like, I don't like this, like, <laughs> I think I feel like Sabine and I had this moment where we looked at each other and we're like, "Okay, got it." Like, <laughs> yeah, we we need, we were like, we need something where we have the space to to explore your ideas, yeah, yeah. explore these ideas. And then I guess speaking of like your sonic palette, what do you think your influences are when like really filling out the production of a song? Um, well, Michael Michael mixed the album so so a lot of what makes it sound the way it does is from michael although we did all produce it together but do you want to talk about like what you're what you were listening to when you mixed it it's tough because it was like it's when i was mixing the record it was very it's sort of weird being the person who mixes the record and also being in the band because it's like when we were up we recorded a lot of this record in the cat skills at a studio um and it was kind of like interesting being at the studio, kind of having these ideas of like, all right, when we get to this stage, you know, I kind of want to do this thing. And it wasn't necessarily, I don't think it was necessarily influenced by what I was listening to at the time a whole bunch, but I, I, I did notice this was like the first project where it's like that sort of muscle started to grow in me a little bit where it was like, going into that process with kind of like fledged out ideas as to how I wanted to. Yeah, I, when I listened to parts of the record, I really feel like you were definitely pulling from a lot of different influences, some that you have already referenced, like uh, Tom Tom Club and 
talking heads and LCD sound system. But I really felt like super nostalgic, especially when I was listening to Confusion for like Cut Copy and like early Toro Imois and stuff like that. And it, 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 I felt so good listening to it because especially recently I've been super nostalgic for like I guess around the late two, 2000s, early 2010s. And that was a lot of the stuff I was listening to at the time. So it really made me think about that. I was, I was, chatting, I was chatting with our friend Barbie Bertiche, who's a DJ and she has this magazine Love Injection. And she's like me in that like she loves, she loves like early 2000s. But I, I, I love that stuff. Yeah. I always love that stuff. And, and I've been realizing we were talking about how lately people are talking about that stuff again. And, and she was like, well, it's like the 20 year mark. It's like after, after 20 years, things circle back and become cool again. And I was like, Oh yes. <laughs> like that's so exciting. <laughs> it's so true. The, the thought that in the next, um, that in the next 10 years, we'll slowly see more and more of stuff that reminds me of what was happening in the early two thousands and like the late, the, the early 2010s is like totally gets me totally <laughs> I mean there's so much there's you know obviously there were um, it wasn't a perfect time there's yeah, it's, of course not. Wanna, it's not that I'd want to repeat how the music yeah. scene was at that time it was certainly rampant with sexism and transphobia and lots of other issues and lots of the people who I loved the music from that period of time um you know i won't say one in particular that who you know recently came out supporting trump there's a lot of issues. oh yeah i'm so disappointed too so <laughs> yeah. I, I share that you know really just yeah. dis- really really upset but you know but there were a lot of there was a lot of exciting music being made and it was people were not quite at the point in terms of talking about um, I don't know, like accountability and emotional yeah. well-being and things that they are now. So I'm excited to see this, like, uh, I'm excited to see people get back into energetic music, I'll say. Music music that you can dance to and music that, that is fun to go see live. But in a context that's a little bit less, like, uh, I don't know, mindless. Yeah drug use and stuff it's like actively totally. inclusive and just like people exactly. supporting each other so i'm assuming you guys like to dance also totally yeah, yeah. we're not good dancers <laughs> Sabine's actually a pretty good dancer the rest of us are actually i would say pretty bad dancers but wow. we love dancing. Wow. i love the jump rope music video specifically like the moves <laughs> incorporated you. in there and like the contrast of like the kind of stills and just like cinematic movement and then the just kind of bouncy <laughs> stuff you guys got our, going on that, that 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 video really does do a good job of like <laughs> illuminating the difference in like the dancing abilities between <laughs> <laughs> nice I mostly improvised everything like I had a couple of guidelines but I just like yeah feel the music yeah <laughs> I can't, really can't go wrong with the feeling of the music, personally. Exactly. <laughs> people, people love Sabine's dance moves. We get, we get, our manager likes to look at our, whatever, social media engagement. We, we post a little video of Sab dancing, 
oh my god people eat it up <laughs> not, not the case with one of us dancing so you know <laughs> Yeah, well, we haven't actually tested that out. Yet. We actually haven't tested that out because <laughs> it seems pretty obvious where that's going to go. You got to test it out. I'll, I will watch it. I'll watch both. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'll oh, definitely yeah. watch both. I'll give it a give it some internet love for sure. <laughs> you guys appreciate your support. So, what I thought was cool about the record and the themes of loss, separation breakups, whether it's romantic, professionally, or in other ways that you've experienced loss and separation, was that you didn't set out to write a record with those themes from the outset. But I'm wondering, when did you start to realize that the songs on this record were developing around uh, this theme. There was one really key moment for me where we we had worked on a song that called Drums Valentino. It's actually kind of a B-side. It's not on the record, but but it will eventually be accessible, probably. And uh, I was complaining to Peter and Michael that it didn't that the words weren't about anything. It didn't make any sense. I had just written it purely based on how the words sounded, and I was like, I don't know. Like I want kind of want it to be about something. And Peter was like it's about your breakup. He was like, what are you talking about? It's obviously about your breakup. And he sort of like, he broke down the lyrics to me and I was like, oh my God. Yeah, like stream of consciousness kind of thing. I think that's like what what happens. Like you, you probably, like when, when I write lyrics, like you're probably processing some sort of emotion inside yourself and you are not even aware that when you put them down, they are actually about something that's pretty concrete. But yeah, I think it was kind of accidental that we realized that it was about breakups. But then when we realized, we're just like, oh my God, everything makes sense. It, it was, it was sort of like, I mean, it was all, I would say all the lyrics besides maybe different patterns, which we was pretty obviously a breakup song. And that was a breakup song for, I just want to say really quickly, Peter wrote the instrumental of that song, Bad Breakup. Sabine wrote the lyrics of that song, Bad Breakup. My ex-girlfriend played violin on that it is truly could not be more of a breakup song but that being said like i think we would we would have never set out to make a breakup album like i can't imagine anything more yeah. more played out you know but but it is kind of cool i think we all do have this tendency to write really stream of consciousness lyrics and then i guess one one thing that's kind of nice about how long it took between the album being finished and it coming out was that we had all of this time to reflect on it and sing it live and do all these different things. But like, oh, it's it's very therapeutic. I, I found and and some of the some of the lyrics are really specific. Even. <laughs> it's not even just vague ideas. Some of them are like clearly about specific people. You know, that's that stuff is pretty exciting to me. I, I like how that happened. Yeah, it's cool. It's a powerful record lyrically for sure. I guess it kind of is appropriate that it's coming out around Valentine's Day. Maybe, you know, as an anti-Valentine's oh, Day that. moment. <laughs> That's sad. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, but the songs don't sound, like, they don't sound sad. There's only like one and a half sad songs. On it. So someone could dance to it and have fun and not and listen to it ten times before they actually realize that the content is a little bit 
upsetting. It's a very crying on the dance floor. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that a yeah, that's a relatable. <laughs> well, I think also like it's the band is really it's like super fun for us, and we we're we're genuinely like really good friends. And so when it, when we come together, it's sort of this like weird support group thing where we're where we're talking through our feelings together and having a good time, and it's it's very cathartic. The vibe the vibe isn't like I want to be clear. It's not it's not meant to be sound it's not supposed to sound happy and secretly it's sad and you realize yeah. like oh that's actually really dark it's it's not like an evil carousel song you know it's like it's like um it was we were genuinely happy writing a lot of these songs because it was extremely cathartic and um <laughs> there were a lot of themes about you know we everyone in the band had a very troubling breakup <laughs> i actually i think some of us had two breakups over the course of this of this record i i did and um and on top of that you know barry ended and there was a lot to process from that experience that was really like kind of kind of earth-shaking in a way for sabine and me and um you know and we all had like jobs that were complex i don't it's there's just a lot of a lot of stuff ending and beginning and so yeah, the thought of like channeling that and being like, okay, this can literally, literally just be gasoline for for to you know make this car run is was kind of very empowering. That's cool. I feel like that reminds me of the like maybe some of the intention behind the song "Dance Yourself Clean" by LCD Sound System, kind of just like getting it all out yeah. without even realizing it sometimes. Oh, yes. We, we love that song. We used to play that song in college. We did a pretty bad cover. It was, it was oh my bad. god, yeah, that was trash. <laughs> it was so bad, actually. Let's never talk about that again. <laughs> so, what was that? What was that like for you? Because it sounds like it was a significant amount of change that was going on in your life, and many artists would translate that into a much different sounding record instead it looks like simon spine is channeling this into something that people can consume and then let it out and feel better about it what was that like for you though to go through a personal romantic breakup and then also the dissolution of barry which played a big part in your music life well i think that I, i'm not a very confrontational person and i think that there is i think when anything ends regardless of whether every person involved there's nobody from these experiences these breakups or the band breakup that i like don't think is a good person anymore but there's still anger still emerges yeah totally and, like, you know stuff like like channel there's some lines in Podmed even that are like totally like mean it almost for for by my standards and and it was it was sort of a way to like uh i think i was voicing anger that i was feeling that i didn't feel was constructive to talk about to the people i think it's important to feel all of your feelings but in this case when it's you know we we worked things out and very like there was a lot of there was a lot happened and i knew that there were different ways that we could handle it and it, it could, it had the potential to become very contentious. And I know people that used to be in bands who hate their old band members yeah. and carry that bitterness around. 
And I think that we all did a pretty good job of looking at it for what it was and trying not to let the fear involved turn it into something really ugly that we were just going to like carry on our shoulders to no one's benefit. But with that being said, and so that was why it was very, very deliberately sort of a nice ending and like, um, but there was, there were really tense moments and there was, there was real anger at times and there was real like sadness associated with it at times. And that was stuff that needed to get needed to be talked about in some way. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I found it happening in, in some of the lyrics I was writing because it was, cause it was you know, on my mind. As, as was mentioned to I me and you know, the songs were span over a couple years that we were writing it. So, um, they're all kind of snapshots of the different time periods. So even if, you know, at the end of the release, you know, the lyrics like you say, Mom, it might feel mean or something. And that's not actually how you feel at the, you know, at the resolution of kind of, you know, like thinking about and having the experiences fully play out. But it's like little snapshots of different people's opinions kind of in different times, which might not, you know, always be fair or even like true. It's just kind of how you're feeling at the time. Totally. And that's interesting too. Yeah. I don't know. I think. I don't think I was angry, but of course not. Um, it's like, I don't know, it's a breakup, you know, everyone has their own paths and everyone should like go after whatever makes them feel good. Uh, but yeah, I think like the, being in a band and being in a relationship, it's, it's the same thing. Just, you have like, you know, three husbands and wives. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's tough. And sometimes like things have their like time, you know, like I think I'm really grateful for the whole experience and it was what it was. And now I think there's a lot of, I think a lot of when bands break up, I think a lot of the contention that happens is really based around fear. It's fear that, that you had this thing that, people seem to like and what if what if you never get that again and i think we just had to acknowledge that fear and move on to the next thing and just accept that it was never going to be that forever yeah i mean i personally also think that like music itself it's something that it's a lot about like moments uh it's very like the, the number of bands that had an extensive career, it's very small. So I feel like it's a seasonal thing in a way. Like I would love to be like Radiohead, obviously, but it's really common to like see bands like coming together for a period and then like separating their their ways later because of a seasonal moment that for that period of time all of your paths were aligning but afterwards they don't align anymore and i mean i'm saying i've had like six bands <laughs> so i understand what it is and of course yeah, i think everything i don't know there's a reason why this group of people like they are together but it can also become a reason why they must like have a different path it just happens. The circumstances can change, and the exact attributes that brought you together can be the ones that that require you to separate. I think in many cases that I think that was in a lot of ways exactly what happened. I don't think anybody changed. I think I think the dynamics changed. Yeah, band dynamics 
are increasingly complicated, so it seems. I was when when I moved to New York, I started meeting a lot of people that were in bands that I grew up listening to, and I got I, I received so much really important mentorship about um, sort of like what's savable, <laughs> like like um, I knew you know I met people that were that were in bands and miserable. I knew people that were in bands and were super happy. And I knew people that had left their band and were relieved. And I knew people that had left their band and hated their band. And I had a lot to draw on from that. And I sort of consulted many of these sort of mentor figures before when, when we were first thinking about going our separate ways. And basically everyone confirmed that, that I was right to trust my gut on it. And that, that also, but I think what I was going to say to Sabine's point, I, I agree bands typically are pretty momentous and, or at least on the surface. And I think that what happens is people pour a lot of gas on the fire when they think it's their moment. And that can totally cause group dynamics to disintegrate really quickly. I think, I think a big thing with us, even though we would, you know, it would be nice to be financially stable as a group. Like we really, we really, really are interested in being in it for the long haul. Even if it's like people pay attention to us for one record and then we're totally obscure for the rest of our career, as long as we can be happy and comfortable, I think that's all we really want. We want it to, we want it to be viable in the long term. And we've been going for a long time, so it seems very feasible. A happy marriage. Totally. Yeah, totally a marriage. It's totally a marriage thing. There's like, there's this, there are like rules to it that are specific to the needs of the people in the relationships. There's yeah, like communication. So many inside jokes. Yeah. So many, yeah. Yeah. So many. All that. You, you had alluded to uh, speaking to mentors in the New York City music scene. You worked with Andrew Van Wingarden of MGMT on the second track, Mod Med. How'd that come about? And what was it like working with someone like him, who I'm assuming you probably uh, cite, would cite as an influence or admire the work that they've put out over the last uh, 15 or so years? Yeah, we're, we're huge MGMT fans. I was, I was like, I really, I really admired them growing up and I still do actually I think their last album was like one of my favorite records probably bigger fans than we probably bigger I fans than we than we <laughs> let him know definitely <laughs> but, but also I mean we, we met Andrew when we just had a we had a friend in common our friend Graham Dixon um, who's in a band called Crystal Fighters and who ran our who runs our the first label we were on Axis Moody who we're still really good friends with and um we, we would just DJ sometimes with the two of them. Like, uh, Michael and I would... Andrew is, like, usually out in Rockaway. So we would go and sometimes do these DJ sets on the beach. And we oh, just awesome. we really liked his music taste. And, and we we had a lot of similar interests. And he just has, like, a sick record collection. Really deep, weird stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're just... We're fans, but we're, we're mostly just buds. And... and He's off doing his own thing. But yeah, we, we, at that time, we were recording at the Axis Moody studio, which for a while was in Rockaway. The Beach Hut. The Beach Hut, it was called at the time. Yes. Um, and it's since relocated. But, but at the 
time we had this this studio in Rockaway, um, and it was not far from Andrew, so we we hit him up just and uh, asked him to come by. I think we went to his space and showed him some songs, and then had him come to the studio, and it was just just happened in an afternoon. We had the we had most of the song written, and we just felt like it needed a little something. And so he came in, and he—it was his idea. In in Mod Med, um, the chorus is the same every time it happens. Uh, vocally, the melody stays the same, but he had the idea of changing, reharmonizing it, like changing the key at the end. So he went up and started playing this chord progression on the Juno 60, and was it was like instantly great because dude's like stupid talented. We actually muted the vocal, and he was playing over a loop at the end without anything over it. And he was playing different right. chords. And yeah. I was kind of sitting there being like, okay. And then he did like a bass line under it. Then we brought the vocals back in, and I was like, oh. Yeah. So yeah, I <laughs> the, the thread. So it was all back the dude's cool. like, the dude's like crazy talented. It, it was, it was sort of. Um, I, I think we all had this moment where we were like, okay, like this is why this, this is why that band has done so well for so long. It's like this guy's like really, really good at this. And yeah, he came up with this really interesting chord progression really fast. He was like, he was like, okay, make me a new audio track. We made him a new audio track, laid down a bass line like in minutes. And then, yeah, and then we unmuted the vocal. We were like, sick. Dude, sick. There is also somewhere a, a recording of him like ripping on MIDI piano, which <laughs> which I don't know. It got turned off at some point. We need to. I want to find it just for our records because it was sick. There's also a pan flute. Solo. There is also a pan flute solo that Michael yeah, recorded, but which, did not make me a track. Yeah, I felt like damn. Save it for the deluxe edition. No, we got so many. As soon as people want a deluxe version, we're good. Yeah. As soon as they want it, they want it. Yeah. Like, here's version stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to be like, maybe a little one. Like, okay, yeah, we got this and this and this. <laughs> Man, it was fine. Just the first album was fine. Thanks. Where did the album title come that game, that's a term that my I heard my dad use once. My dad's a biologist and it's he he studies specifically lizards. Dude yeah. loves lizards. Dude loves lizards. <laughs> I grew up in a house solely <laughs> dedicated to lizards. It took me years to realize that wasn't like a universal <laughs> experience. One time I walked into a room and I said, guys, it smells like lizards in here, don't you think? <laughs> And everyone looked at me, and then I knew <laughs> that that was not a, not how everyone grows up. The charismatic megafauna means um, it's it's a term that refers to animals like polar bears or whales or eagles that are considered cute or attractive by human terms and tend to be um, the poster children for um, eco movements. Um, so like the koala or the, the, what is it? It's a panda bear on, um, uh, WWF. Yeah. Yeah. I can never remember if, it, if that's the fighting organization. Oh, it was. <laughs> well, they got sued. They got sued to change it by the animal organization. Yeah. They got sued. And they had to change to WWE. <laughs> Well, so the the name I, I first of all just thought it was really funny and dorky sounding, and then 
And then, but it was also really interesting to me. Like my dad studies lizards, specifically anolis lizards, which are these weird small lizards that do push-ups and are oh, they're really interesting. So they're like ripped <laughs> lizards. <laughs> yeah, they're they're like gym rats. Gym lizards. They talk like <laughs> um, but it's like my my dad's colleagues. Like he has a he has a colleague who studies flies, fruit flies. He has another colleague that studies dragonflies it's like they're all super hyper specialized on these really small creatures who don't get a lot of love in the public eye and yet are really integral to their the ecosystems of which they are a part and so charismatic megafauna is sort of a derogatory term that's thrown around by biologists to talk about like cute animals that people care about <laughs> but like you know, where would we be without the fruit flies it's it's a i thought it was a funny thing to be salty about and also like also i don't know i think you could like um i i think it felt like a vague enough term that people could make their own meaning from it and i won't it, you know it, i think that that it was kind of fun in that way that's that's where the name came yeah i don't know how to describe it but i just feel like it's a suitable title for the music that's on the record it just feels right, you know? I think there's also this whole thing where we're trying to be, we're trying to make like pop arena jams and simultaneously are like, no, we want to be weird. <laughs> and and, <there's, laughs> and that interplay is always there. And I, yeah, it just felt like, it just felt right. And it also just felt funny. I don't think any of us are really very charismatic. I, I disagree. I think you're all extremely charismatic. Thank you. The truth comes out. <laughs> I keep like I keep roasting the entire band, but I'm meaning to just roast myself. But and then Mike just keeps quietly going. Wow. <laughs> I I really also like Solution, the second to last track, because I just feel like it's such a club banger. How'd that track come together? And I was also wanting to know what you did to treat the vocals on that track to make them sound as deep as they were. Peter, jump in. Um, well, so the, the beginning of Solution instrumental was made, I think, in the beach hut. Um, yeah. I think you're there with a couple of friends, I think. We were there with some friends from London and we couldn't figure out how to get the drum machine to like receive MIDI. Oh my God, it was so frustrating. We, we ended up recording just like a weird little beat and then and then I sneakily used our friend's modular synth without his permission <laughs> and made came up with a really simple bass line and we just sort of were like futzing around for a long time. We had a really, we had these basic, basic multi-track session of us just futzing around with different things for a while but then but then at some point we started to pull it together and then and then peter had this idea for this weird like nightmare club yeah know? well i just well, we had the first it's like 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 the first half of the instrumental was made well before the second half which we worked on together and fleshed out um but over the first half i started with the vocal idea right after i went to the dentist um, nice. <laughs> this is part of why the uh, the uh, cavity refrain keeps happening. I got a cavity fill. 
Um, I thought you were going to say you're on laughing gas or something. And you yeah, were, I thought that's where you were going too. Yeah, I, was, I thought it was something yeah. to do with that. No, I, uh, no, I wish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, just kind of these like bouncy, I, don't know, I like making kind of bouncy, like childlike rhymes over songs and then trying to incorporate them into different genres, which they shouldn't fit in. Um, and um, I think it was also inspired a little bit by a brother, Michael Jack Alligator Tears. Oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, the vocal effect, actually, it wasn't pitch shifted. I just sang it that low. But then I oh, wow. did. I adjusted the, uh, the vocal format to be like way deeper. So it was like sung by someone basically with like a really large diaphragm. So I basically <laughs> made myself sound larger. But the whole thing was sung in, in that low register. We, we tracked that song in the cat skills when we were like doing it for real. And our friend Chris, who was engineering it, was like, Peter started singing it. He was like, <laughs> he was, like what the hell? <laughs> he was like totally weirded out that he could sing that. Like, uh, it was like the, it's just like the little altar boy with the vocal format all the way down and the distortion up. And it's just four tracks layered, totally unedited. It was just four run throughs of the whole song. And like one of them or two of them were up like a little bit higher in the pitch or something. But yeah, but it was just that because the song was so robotic kind of uh, that we didn't edit the vocals at all. I just tried to sound like a robot, but obviously there's a lot of human error involved, which kind of made things sound a little bit like organic while still being kind of unsettling. It's a weird song. It's very, it's, I've, only, I've only done it once, but it's very fun to play live. Oh, yeah. sick. But also confusing. If you try to, I challenge any listeners to try to count the measures at the end when stuff happens. This is like in the, build up, in the, build up. In the yeah, well, yeah, like when, when stuff starts, there's this moment where everything kind of pulls out and stuff starts happening again. And when we were learning to play it live, we were like, what were we? This is crazy. It's like, we have to count to nine and then 20 blood. It's like totally, totally confusing, but but it is very fun to play live. Awesome. I can't wait to hear that song in the live setting. And dance a little bit. There's like a little bit. the end. The very end has this weird, like Terry Riley inspired organ moment. That was like when it all came together. It was when we 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 put that really loud synthy organ sound over the over the end of it. That was when it got really exciting to me, at least. Yeah. So solution is the second to last track. Unwound is the last track. I felt like the record at the end, the last two tracks are they're kind of sparse lyrically, and I was wondering if that was intentional, uh, an intentional decision on the part of the band. Because listening to it, I feel like you're you're going through the heavy lifting of dissecting these feelings of loss and separation, as we've discussed, and then after that, you're kind of left with the feelings that result afterwards which kind of fit into the the last two songs so i was just curious if there was anything to that the lyrical sparseness at the end of the record it's an awesome take i don't i don't think it was conscious but but i will say that like there is something about uh processing feelings while they're obvious yeah obvious that you're supposed to be feeling them maybe you're not even really feeling them yet and you're imagining what they're going to feel like and writing about that is it's easier to write a happy song when you're thinking about what a sad feeling will, will feel like eventually 
whereas it's well, but I'll let Peter talk to that because he, he wrote the lyrics for the two final songs on the record. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that, it, it, I think um, the way that we ordered the albums ends up, so it wasn't necessarily like, like when it's written, it wasn't conscious, but the way that they're ordered and the way that the albums arc um, is kind of like we change the energy very consciously. So I don't know if it was as, if, I don't know if you're thinking about it lyrically as much as just general energy, but obviously the lyrics behind the song will be influenced by how the song sounds when we're writing words for it. Um, We'd like to end our albums with a, the last song. The second to last song is the end, and the last song is always yeah. like, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say an ellipsis and then a question mark. <laughs> I love ellipses. So, great sonic use of punctuation. <laughs> Can't say I've ever received that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I just made it up on the spot. I was like, how can I describe that in compliment form? And there you go. I also like, uh, I like to write songs sometimes which other people would describe as meandering. <laughs> so <laughs> some of those often end up being the question mark. Yeah. Because it meanders too much to be anywhere not the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's yeah. It wasn't like we pushed it to the end because it wasn't good. It was just, it's just, well, no, it's just you know the, yeah, in terms it's, of energy. If, if, if unwound was like song three, people would be yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're playing. We're you know we're thinking about the Spotify's a little bit. It's <laughs> the mainly the artistic notions take the take the forefront, but sometimes sometimes you got to think about like. Okay, well, is somebody going to turn this off? Three songs in, we gotta, we gotta trick people into listening, and then, and then hopefully by the end, where we have them in our hands. And the, yeah, yeah, I'm in your hands, man. Been listening to this record cover to cover a bunch, so feels good to be in your the palm of your hands, cupped <laughs> like that. Our sweaty, climbing hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> My sweaty hands. <laughs> Speak for your own hands. So we're all I, I just recorded bad dancers with sweaty palms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this I'm all I'm just talking about myself. All right. Well now we're gonna play some songs from Simon Spine's brand new record. The record is called Charismatic Megafauna. You can get a copy on limited edition pink vinyl via Simon Spine. P-S-Y-M-O-N-S-P-I-N-E.bandcamp.com. We're going to hear Confusion, Mod Med, Jump Rope, and Milk, which features Barry. Bye-bye. 
We're back. We just heard four songs from Simon Spine's brand new record, Charismatic Megafauna. We heard Confusion followed that up with Mod Med, Jump Rope, and Milk. That last track features Barry. Again, everyone, you can get a copy of the record via simonspine.bandcamp.com. It's out now via Northern Spy Records. Now, Simon Spine picked some records from my record collection, and we're going to talk about them. We'll start with Noah. Noah, you selected Paul McCartney, the record McCartney 2 song, Dark Room. And 
great timing because McCartney just released McCartney 3 <laughs> like 40 <laughs> years later, which is, you know, never too late to put out the third in the series of McCartney albums. But yeah, this is a great record. Paul McCartney, of course, a really good songwriter. I don't think anyone would argue that. Yeah. Um, it's that album is just amazing. McCartney to you is, is insane. He sounds like a crazy person. I have my favorite story with that is like is uh, we were with I was with my friend Eric in the car, and uh, I was like I was like I'm gonna put on some Paul McCartney, and he was like I don't want to listen to Paul McCartney. He's like into really weird music, and uh, I was like okay. And then I put on Temporary Secretary, and he was like, what is this? This is amazing. And I was like, it's Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, dude. <laughs> dude. Suck it. Read it, it please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you in court. I skipped over um, coming up because I thought it would give away the secret. But anyway, that, that album is amazing. Dark Room is a totally weird song. Could be potentially interpreted as a little creepy, <laughs> you know, like many songs from that era. Um, but it's it's bizarre and it's great. It has these weird cats. You can tell he just was like on one he made it. And, but what I really actually, the deluxe version of that record has a song called Secret Friend on it, which is the namesake of a party that we throw in New York. And Secret Friend really is like my, my jam. That's a totally weird, totally bizarre song. I think it's like 10 minutes long or something. And we're just like, who is this guy? But for me, you know, good, good songwriting, good pop songwriting mixed with really bizarre sounds. It's like the creme de la creme. That's my, that's the sweet spot for me. So that's Apparently that song that wasn't song. even supposed to be on the record. It was like almost gonna be like really, yeah, and the, like a deluxe version, but they like squeezed it in to the end, yeah, specifically. I also noticed something funny about about that record. That's that's interesting to know. I I, I get yeah, why. Yeah, right. <laughs> so on the American release of that record, there's the very concerningly titled "Frozen Jap." Concerning. Concerning, especially considering it's like a major pentatonic scale and obviously it's meant to sound like YMO or something. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a really cool song, slightly troubling name. But I noticed the, the version of the record you have is the Japanese release. Yes. And it's called, on the Japanese version, it's called Frozen Japanese. <laughs> it's like, it is. It is. So any any, like illusion i had that that wasn't what he was alluding to has been <laughs> been crushed by me and the japanese pressing of mccartney too that i have Your second pick, Rupa, Disco Jazz. The whole story behind this album is amazing. You pick the song Moja Bari Moja, 
This the, the whole story about how this discover uh, this record became a cult favorite because her son discovered that she recorded this album by finding a copy in the attic of their home and she was like and, don't ask me about that that's not interesting that's over yeah. <laughs> she was like you should just, it that way it's just in, it's so it's one of those stories where you read it and you think well life is really fucking <laughs> weird because now this is a record that people are obsessed with including me i think it's amazing and thanks to her son for just discovering it and now we know her story and everything about it. So just so many cool things about this album. Well, I think I think the reissue world is so interesting because almost almost every big reissued record from like William Onyabar to like Tom Say or whatever, they, these all have really interesting stories behind them. And uh, I love I love chatting with them. So I, I know some people who, who do, who like are in that game and it's, first of all, apparently very cutthroat and kind of gnarly, but, yeah. but really, really interesting because there's always some story about somebody putting out a record, being genuinely really psyched about it and nobody cared and they are disillusioned and then eventually make peace with it and go on with their lives. And then people, people being discovered at an age and at a point in their life where they no longer care if they're discovered and had no expectation of being discovered. And it, it's just really, really interesting. There's like, I mean, that record is so good. It's like just such a good vibe. And it's also, I don't know, you can kind of see how maybe it was considered too normal to be weird and too weird to be normal at the time and just didn't fit in with what people were interested in or maybe the label kind of dropped the ball when they put it out but um it's it's uh you can totally see how circumstances change and then music that was once not relevant to a lot of people feels super on the mark and it just happens that like these days people are really interested in the, that period of the 70s and 80s where disco was getting consumed yeah. in different countries and and being sort of we're seeing it through the lens of all these other things i love um this is off a little bit off topic but i heard this really good story about william onibar just talking about reissues where apparently um when Luwaka Bob put out his record and it was doing really well all of these festivals started wanting to book him and um, he, Luakabop, went to William Onyabar and was like, hey, like, uh, this festival wants to book you and pay you, like, 20 grand. Like, can you, can you come to the U.S. and play? And he was like, he was like, I've given up those ways. I'm a good Christian man now. I will never, he was like, I will never play again until I have repaid all of my debts. Wow. And they're like, okay, like, uh is there anything we can do to help you repay all of your debts, whatever that means? And he apparently was like, there's a guy in Italy. His name is Giovanni. I owe him 70 bucks. (laughs) 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 The story goes that Luwakabop, they couldn't get any more information from him. And Luwakabop sent a guy, sent an intern to a remote part of Italy to find a guy named Giovanni that was owed the equivalent of $70 in whatever Nigerian currency is. 
and he couldn't, and William Ongar died, and he, that was it. Like, they were like, Damn. Yeah. Damn, that is crazy. Wow. I'm glad you shared that story with us. I've heard this before. It's a famous story. <laughs> it's pretty cool. All right, next up, we've got Brother Michael's selection, 17 Days by Prince. So this is a B-side that appears on uh, When Doves Cry. And what I really like about this song is I think the lyrics are really awesome. And Prince gets a lot of credit for obviously being an incredibly talented musician, but I feel like he doesn't get enough credit about what a great lyricist he was too at certain times. And I think this is a great example of that. Yeah, this is like, um, this song in particular, when I, when I, when Noah and I like really like bunkered down with like DJing in New York, I kept finding like a lot of the Prince singles, um, and like aside from the artwork being amazing i just started like gobbling up any ones i could get and i remember when i first heard this song i was just really like there's something like very pleasantly direct with how just straight into the story the song gets yeah it's just like this is what happened like this is like a story between two people it's like kind of ties in with like our weird like collective simon spine breakup <laughs> motif um but i also like just i chose this song because i was listening to a large amount of prints during this album cycle i still do but more so then because i just kind of was like really um discovering all these really weird extended versions that are on the singles and stuff um but yeah i don't have the anecdotes that Noah has for his selection, but I will, there's a funny story with uh, why I chose Prince because there was a day where I was in the beach studio by myself and I was, it's, it was kind of like the origin story of Milk. Um, I had, I was just like messing around and I'm not the greatest guitar player, but I can kind of play guitar and I kind of, at, in the initial demo, I had a very Prince-esque guitar line um, that was very much like the song Cream, which is why I named the demo file Milk, and then everybody in the band just kind of ran with it, which is, that's how, Milk doesn't have anything to do with anything, I don't think, but Cream is why I named that from Logic File Milk. I think Barry, I think we just gave the instrumental to Barry in the G wrote about who knows what without any knowledge of why it was called that. So I think it was about aliens going from the show. Yeah, my, my demo naming is very dry. I just want to say also really quickly that Michael actually rips on guitar. He's actually like a, he's a, he's a shredder. Yeah. No, that, I mean, I, I think I will always be obsessed and very jealous of Prince's ability to just sort of kind of like give you this narrative 
and have it not feel like you're listening to like an audio book. Yeah. And also like sobbing while you're dancing. Great way to describe it for sure. Next up, we've got Peter's Picks, Radiohead, Kid A from Kid A, probably one of the most important records of the last 30 years. Yeah, so I think Kid A was, I think, like the second, it was a CD I ever owned. I think my brother, my older brother got it for me for like one of my birthdays, and I'd already known like OK Computer and um, Kill the Thief and stuff, so when I first heard Kid A, I was like... This is garbage, but it was one of those, <laughs> yeah. because you know I, mean, I was probably like seven or something. Um, <laughs> but when did it come out? Like two thousand one. Two thousand one, yeah, or two thousand, yeah, one of those years. Yeah, so I was, I was like a seven-year-old computer being like, "This is trash." <laughs> yeah. So, but then it was one of the, but, you know, a lot of the albums have been the most influential in the year ones, which when I first listened to, I didn't like it, and then it challenges you in a way. So by like the fifth listen, you're obsessed with it. You know, throughout other parts of my life, I've tried to find good, like, ambient music or other things which hit that certain je ne sais quoi, you know? And I, I always find myself, you know, coming back to, like, everything in its right right place. And then Kid A, it's like the first two tracks on that album. It's like, oh, yeah, well, it's, what I've been looking for has been here the whole time, you know? Um, and, um, yeah, it ended up also being influential for some of the songs. Like, you mentioned Un- Unwound before. So the kind of atmospheric quality and uh, drum sounds and stuff end up being kind of integral to some of the, of the production on Charismatic Megafauna for some of those demos. Um, yeah, I don't know, just really, I don't know, really powerful atmospheric synth work. And then you also selected Are You a Hypnotist by the Flaming Lips off of Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. Right around the same time period, too. This came out like a year after this record, 2002, yeah. I think. So I'm actually like an unapologetic 2000s lover. Um, I think a lot of same. people have referenced things from a long time ago, but all my biggest references are the last, you know, like within the you know 20 years or something. Um, I picked that this song for Brother Michael as well. We're listening to the album. Um, Flaming Lips was one of the bands, which was kind of the first psych rock bands I got into. And Yoshimi Valley Robots was my gateway into their world. Um, and it's just, this is also becoming influential on album three, and it's all the stuff that we're writing now. A lot of the, uh, I don't know, Flaming Lips, it, it's really beautiful. And um, it's really driving and you don't even realize like I, I listened back to that album and like are you hidden is a good example of this and like there's not even there'll be like like two minutes at a song with like no percussion or anything but you're like but, but your memory of the song is one which was like really had a lot of force and drive behind it so i would always assume that they had like really fat bass lines and drums the whole time but they really actually have like 
a lot of beautiful, sparse moments, which I think is really influential for the songwriting I try to make. And uh, from a production point of view, we were using Flaming Lips as the production kind of marker for the rhythm section. Um, I actually ended up re-recording like five bass lines because the way I recorded it didn't have enough high end, so we wouldn't be able. Because I was kind of using that like the really fat way that the bass and drums work together on those albums. We were kind of aiming for recreating something like that on Charismatic Megapod. Also, nice. love like the intention behind but that song. Like, what are you, a hypnotist? Like, like when people play with your mind and. I mean, I feel like the whole song plays with your mind at the same time. It's a really good one. We've got Sabine's picks. Enjoy by Bjork. This is really cool because I have a like rare 12-inch single of this that I received basically as a gift from my friend Glenn Morrow, who runs Bar None Records based in Hoboken, New Jersey. And one day I went to the offices there and he started just like giving me a bunch of stuff in their closet and this was one of the things he gave me so i'm pumped to have this record and it's a single it appears on her album post uh yeah she's one of my biggest influences and especially like how she puts like this like extreme energy in her voice but still sounding like like i don't know like how she screams it's like so like demanding of like goodness i don't know and enjoy it's basically about it uh and yeah it's a single from post originally but i saw that you have this special like the special edition and yeah i think everything about it is incredible it's it's just like it's super 90s but still like the way she gathers all of her influences like there's a lot of distortion there's a lot of like crazy percussion there's like there's everything going on in the song and but still like super super energetic um and yeah i, I just love it so here jim flynn's doing And then, last but not least, Cool Thing by Sonic Youth off of Goo. Of course, Chuck D has a cameo on this track as well. And just a really awesome Kim Gordon written Sonic Youth song. Yeah, I think she is also one of my favorite iconic women. Um, I've seen Sonic Youth twice live, so I was very lucky. I was actually on their last concert Whoa, in Brazil. Yeah. I don't know if you read yeah. Girl. Yeah, and, and I was in that concert. 
<laughs> and it was yeah and, and it's crazy because i don't think while i was watching it i knew that that was their last show and i remember that the only thing i could think was just like how amazing her legs were <laughs> and i couldn't believe that that lady was like older than my mom <laughs> and i love her attitude I, i i really really look up to her as an artist and i think like we picked especially like the second songs of our picks as like influences for our new record. So I think I want to like for this new record that we're writing, I definitely want to throw some like Gordon attitude. Um, so I think that was like one of the main reasons that I picked the song because and I mean, I am a huge fan of their guitar work. I mean, I'm a guitarist and like Sonic Youth, they're, they're basically my school for guitar playing yeah such an inventive guitar band you know yeah yeah exactly and not only guitar i've been just like noise itself and like it couldn't be anything you know you can just like create cool textures out of just like doing anything you know it's super inventive and super fun and yeah for me what what what's like sticks out the most is definitely the attitude and what kim gordon represents also as like a huge power female icon so that was my pick she is incredible her solo album that she put out last year is also yeah. really good i got and i got the album too i am um, that that that's on airbnb yeah. <laughs> she's she's great and she's continuing to make incredible music in her post sonic youth career so that's awesome so coming to the end of the episode Simon Spine, Sabine, Noah, Michael, Peter, and the awesome Diana Delandro, my great co-host. Thanks everyone for being here. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for the great thought-provoking questions. You guys are great interviewers. Oh, well, you're a wonderful band. and everyone before we close out with unwound uh, you're working on your next album you've mentioned that a couple of times any other plans for the band this year what's what's next we're going to release um some video work essentially documenting what we've been up to and what it might be like if we were able to play live <laughs> awesome uh, that's uh, yeah no i'll song, keep it song three is almost ri- or album three is almost fully written also so we're going to try to get that out as soon as possible for touring season everyone charismatic megafauna is out now via the great new york city label northern spy records you can order it on limited edition opaque pink vinyl or standard black vinyl if you're boring as hell (laughs) 
<laughs> and Simon Spine, that's with the silent P, P-S-Y-M-O-N, spine.bandcamp.com. And we're going to play the last track on the record to close the show. Unwound, everyone, thank you so much again. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm.